But first, talking about the loss of a political powerhouse. He had an energy for life. Uh, Mike Farmer told me today he talked to him last Thursday. He was full of plans and ideas and interests and things he wanted to see us do and things he wanted to do um, here in the legislature. He was the president of the Association of Former MLA. So that's who he was from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. That was Adrian Dix talking yesterday after news broke that Ian Waddell had passed away. Condolences started pouring in people with very fond memories talking about some of the accomplishments and where Ian Waddell was instrumental in his life as a politician. Joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Ujjal Desange, former Premier of BC, Attorney General, MP as well. Ujjal Desange, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you. Uh, when you heard about the passing of Ian Waddell, what were the first things that went through your mind? Well, first was a shock. I, I spoke to him about four weeks ago, and he was full of um, zest, full of plans, and, uh, you know, the book he was writing, things that he was doing. And, of course, then um, all of uh, my own memories flashed before my eyes because I've known him since the 70s. Um, and, you know, I remember uh, a campaign in mid-70s in Kingsway where he volunteered, I volunteered, and then he ran in Kingsway in 79 federally, and I ran in Vancouver South provincially, and um, and those campaigns overlapped. And uh, so I, I remember in that campaign he was looking for someone to take a photo with. I understand gas prices was an issue, and I was pumping gas for him in the photo. <laughs> <laughs> When you look back at his career as well, uh, looking back to how he first got into politics uh, and ran and his career uh, that went to both provincial politics, uh, federal politics as well, uh, what what would you say his legacy is or or some of his biggest uh, accomplishments? Well, I think uh, one of the more uh, enduring legacies is the inclusion of the Indigenous rights, the treaty rights in Section 35 of the Charter. Um, and those were suggestions that he and others made. He was one of the prime movers of that suggestion that got into the charter eventually, although he was in the opposition in the third party, but, uh, uh, you know, made the right suggestion, got through and uh, and is in the charter. Um, he was um, the counsel for the Mackenzie Valley um, uh, Pipeline Inquiry, Berger Inquiry, and made a very significant contribution in that. I mean, that was a milestone when that happened. Um, You know, beyond that, of course, in the provincial politics, he and I were colleagues for uh, four years, um, um, both as cabinet ministers. Then I was the premier, and he was my minister for the environment. He was... When he was the tourism minister prior to that, he pushed um, the 2010 Olympics bid that we were making at that time, which succeeded. Um, and he was also, as a tourist uh, minister of tourism, he was a, a big booster, as former Premier Clark has said. He was always a booster, a shameless booster, if I can use his words, because he loved um, boosting British Columbia, boosting Canada, nationally and internationally. Uh, He was a great uh, uh, messenger for Canada. Uh, Also instrumental in bringing in the film tax credit, and I know film became a very important part of his life as well. Uh, Would you count that, say, in in the list as far as uh, his accomplishments and and something that does have very much a lasting effect on B.C.? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, what we have of Hollywood North uh, is is quite significantly because of what he did during those uh, three or four years in the provincial politics. Um, and uh, he would always talk about it. He was making documentaries himself. Uh, he was busy planning another one um, right now. Um, he was always, he had plans on the go. Um, you know, four weeks ago, he when I talked to him, uh, he told me what his plans were for the retired MLAs and the retired MPs, and he was uh, he's the president of both of the associations. <laughs> Um, he he also, I mean, I remember as a very young reporter uh, several times talking to him and he was always on and he was always so uplifting and just so much energy, I remember. And, and some of the condolences, I think, reflect that, saying people that had encounters with him, worked with him, uh, were saying, uh, even if you weren't part of the same party, you, you didn't have to disagree, or sorry, you didn't have to agree with him, uh, you could disagree with him, but he was somebody that you could always have a, a conversation with, and he was always willing and able to do that. I, I don't believe he was ever over-partisan. I think he was partisan to the extent that he was pushing issues. Issues were what mattered to him, and he was prepared to work with the opposition, with the government, um, uh, on any issue uh, which was dear or near to his heart. And he was, he was an activist at heart, you know, just wanted to change anything that he saw anything wrong with, he'd want to change. I mean, I I remember him from the 79 campaign. That was my first campaign. I think that was his first campaign, if I remember correctly, his federal mine provincial. And uh, I remember campaigning with him and uh, I couldn't keep up with him. And, and I'm three or four years younger than him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing there's a, there's a few other people that, that would say the same thing as far as keeping up with him. Absolutely, absolutely, and and you know he, and and he looks healthy. Uh, in fact, he just saw my son about four weeks ago after he had a stent put in, in his heart. My my son had a heart attack, and they were talking about heart issues. And my son was giving him health advice when he's a lawyer, for God's sake. But you know he he had a he. He just reached out to people all the time. He, I, I mean, he, he had countless friends and connections uh, across partisan lines. It didn't matter to him. Uh, he tweeted out a photo, and a lot of people uh, are, are making mention of this, that he tweeted out a photo of the view from the deck of his house with the blossoms in the background, the cherry blossoms in Stanley Park, uh, and that you could see uh, he re- referenced the rest of Canada over the mountains and with the last word, paradise. Uh, it's it's almost eerie reading that and, and looking at those words, knowing that that was on Sunday. But a lot of people also saying that was very much Ian Waddell. That was Ian Waddell. I think he loved the country. He loved the province. Um, he was an immigrant. I mean, he would tell me, you're not the only immigrant around here, you know? So we, we would joke about that. Or he came from Scotland. I came uh, from India via England around the same time. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he came a bit earlier. Um, and and he was full of love for this country. And, and I think part of what took him into politics was to make sure that that he repaid the debt he considered that he owed the country, which many of us do feel that we do owe um, this this country a great deal. And uh, and he, you know, he gave back to the country perhaps a lot more than the country gave him.
Do you think politics have changed a lot since, uh, well, you and Ian Waddell, since those those times in the 70s, as far as what would it be like if he was uh, an acting politician, either provincially or federally today? I think it would be much harder to be in Waddell today in the House of Commons um, um, because that's where he spent most of his life. Uh, it would be much more difficult to be like him because uh, things are much more partisan. Uh, there is uh, very little cooperation across across the aisle, across the party lines, uh, whereas he, you know, obviously he wasn't even in the opposition. He was in the third party when he uh, made a difference uh, to what was in the charter. We'll leave it there. Ujjal Dasanj, thank you so much for for joining us to talk about uh, this man who was such a big part uh, of the fabric uh, of politics in this province and this country. Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you. Well, yesterday on the program, we were talking about a new survey. It was done by Research Co. It was commissioned by the BC Building Trades, and it was looking at whether or not there is support to a return to a system of compulsory trades certification in this province. And yesterday, we spoke with Bryn Bork, who is the interim executive director of the BC Building Trades. I mean, what the provincial government is looking to do, and we, we know this because they, they were very clear in the last election, they're looking to re-regulate the labour market and to build capacity to meet growing demand in the skilled trades. And this is really going to open the doors and get more people into apprenticeships in BC. Let's bring in Chris Gardner, the president of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Great to be here. What is your response to this? Uh, This, again, was commissioned by this group, the BC Building Trades. Uh, They're saying there is great support in this province to uh, re-instigate compulsory trades certification. What is your response? Well, you know, our response is that, as as you well know, you know, when you you conduct a poll... the the, uh, the real understanding of what people are saying lies in how the question is phrased and worded. Um, so if you step back and say, okay, what is the challenge facing the construction sector in British Columbia, and what what is the problem that that government's trying to solve? And and the, the number one issue for uh, the construction industry is a shortage of skilled workers. And it has been that way for many, many years in British Columbia. Construction has been very busy. It was deemed an essential service. So for the most part, construction workers uh, kept working throughout the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and the shutdown that happened last year. Um, so how do we address the challenge of finding enough skilled workers? And the reality is that whenever government considers a sweeping change like the one they're contemplating, uh, and it doesn't really matter what the issue is. Sweeping changes need to be thought through carefully because there are often unintended consequences, even if you have a lofty objective and an admiral goal that you're trying to meet. So in this case, um, we, we're, we're talking about attracting new people to the construction workforce and ensuring that they're trained. Those are the two key issues. And the sweeping change needs to take in mind a couple of realities that are facing construction contractors and, and when, you t- when it comes to training, there are some really fundamental challenges. And the first is a shortage of spaces uh, for apprentices to complete their coursework. Um, so if you are in commercial painting or drywalling or if you're a glazer, there's only one school in British Columbia where you can go and get uh, apprenticeship training. Um, and so the wait lists on the, for that school are often a year, two years, up to three years long. So if you're in a three- or four-year apprenticeship course 
And you can't go from level one to level two or level three to level four, uh, level two to three and three to four, between, you know, faster than like in, in three to four years or four or five years, you've got to wait eight to 10 years. Uh, that's a disincentive for people to complete their training because they just basically say, you know, I'm, I'm at a point where I've got enough experience that I'm just going to continue on in my job. I'm really busy. I'm working overtime. I'm making a lot of money. And, uh, and so they don't complete the course. So challenges like that are critical to understand before the government decides to make a sweeping change. So what would it do then if they brought back compulsory trade certification? Well, you know, it does create some complexity and confusion. And whenever big government programs are rolled out, uh, the devil's in the details, and often those details aren't, aren't very, very good. And so the, the concern would be, are there enough spaces uh, in, um, in, in schools? Um, is the curriculum uh, flexible enough? And one of the things that we learned coming through the COVID-19 pandemic is the shift to online training and flexibility in delivering education, not necessarily in the classroom. And so there needs to be more flexibility to allow construction workers in various parts of British Columbia to not have to come down to the lower mainland for training. Um, Iron workers are another great example. There's only one school in British Columbia that offers training to be um, to be an iron worker if you're in the rebar industry, and that's at you know it's it's, it's BCIT one school. Um, so what happens? What's happening in the private sector? is that companies like there's a a member of ours, Lower Mainland Steel. Lower Mainland Steel has 200 apprentices, and they've created their own academy, LMS Academy, to train their workers because of of the lack of ability to get their workers into the one school in the province and get them through their training program. So the private sector is filling in the gap that isn't there formally. Uh, And so lots of companies are sponsoring challenge courses for Red Seal certified trades, and be, and they're becoming innovative and creative with how they're addressing the challenges associated with training young people and, and new entrants into the construction sector. Uh, because that was one of the issues, and Bryn Burke talked about this yesterday. She said that with a lack of the compulsory training, there is, isn't the opportunity for apprenticeships and for people to get into that. But, but it sounds like the, the private sector has found a solution to that, at least found a way to have people that are trained and can do the job. Because really, isn't that what, what people want? To, I don't know that people really care where the training takes place. They just want to make sure that the tradespeople and people doing this work know what they're doing. Yes, that's true. And and let's remember that there isn't, you know, when it comes to the safety of construction work in British Columbia, it is it is undertaken very safely. And there's different checks on that inspection regimes, um, both at the local level, you know, depending on where the project is in a city or or municipality. Those projects are inspected by those uh, by those entities. You have an organization called Technical Safety BC, which also is involved in ensuring that tradespeople uh, have the appropriate credentials before they conduct, undertake work. So construction is being performed safely. The issue is how do we train more people and do that effectively? And how um, how do we attract more people? to the construction trades. And that's really, uh, it's a challenge that's, that's certainly been uh, something that's impacted construction for many, many years, but it runs across our entire economy. You know, we are, if you take out immigration 
from Canada's population growth, our population would be flat or declining. And so we simply don't have enough new workers coming into our economy, uh, not only in construction, but across our uh, across every industry. Um, and so we're running into a situation where um, there's a shortage of workers. And that shortage of workers is, um, and if you are looking for opportunities in construction, there's a lot of opportunities and, and compensation and benefits is increasing because there's such a demand. And so great opportunity if you're a young person to consider a career in construction uh, because that is the number one issue, is getting young people, new workers into construction. And then once they're there, how do we train them to make sure they can do the job safely? And I do think the private sector is filling a gap and that they're being innovative and creative in doing that. And I would just advise the government before they make a sweeping change that all of the implications of that change are understood so that you don't increase complexity and confusion among contractors and costs or the end purchaser of, of many of these projects, which is which goes to housing affordability. Um, all of these rules and regulations sound good, but at the end of the day, someone's got to pay for it. And in Metro Vancouver and other major centres in this province, we see what's happening to um, uh, housing prices and the cost of construction is one element of that. Uh, is it something the private sector wants to do to fill that gap? Oh, yeah, definitely. There's, there, is, um, there is a big, uh, a big emphasis within uh, our membership on training workers. And, you know, every company is proud of the work that it does. It's proud of its brand. It's proud of its people. And really, at the end of the day, one thing that COVID-19 has taught everyone is that you, when you boil down everything in your business to one thing, it's all about people. And so um, we, as an as a organization, that one of the value adds that we have is we, uh, we offer hundreds and hundreds of training programs for construction professionals. And so there is a desire to do that, to invest in your people. When there's a shortage of workers, you can't afford to not train your people to make sure they can do the best that they can do for you and to keep them as part, to build a strong culture, to keep them in your company. Thanks for being with us today. Well, the B.C. government has boosted income assistance and disability rates. That is making those boosts permanent, and it's the first time we've seen that in quite some time. However, it is not as much as we've seen in the COVID-19 supplement, and we've talked about that in the past as well. Let's bring in Helene Boyd, co-executive director of Disability Alliance B.C. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill, for having me. Uh, what is your response to this boost in both uh, the income assistance and the disability uh, assistance rates? Uh, well, so far, since the news came out yesterday, I've seen a number of reactions um, on all sides of the spectrum. So on the more positive side, people are very happy for this increase. It gives them an ease of mind that they'll receive this permanently, this $175 permanently from now on. And then more towards the middle part of the spectrum, uh, people feel like it's a good news, but there's still more to be done to uh, to really uh, improve poverty um, reduction in the province. And then on the, on the more negative side of the spectrum, people, some people, especially who are on disability assistance, feel that it's a bit of an insult um, because uh Disability advocates, um, the disability community, including Disability Alliance BC, have been advocating for the $300 crisis supplement to be made permanent. So this $175 is a, can be 
sometimes construed as a bit of a slap in the face for those people who've been advocating for quite a while to have this $300 instead. And then I've also seen some reactions about confusion uh, around this $175, uh, specifically about why the ministry decide on this figure specifically uh, and why not the $300. And there's really no explanation as of yet as to where this $175 figure came from. Uh, yeah, and I was trying to find that as well, if there was some equation or some reason, because I think the last time we talked about this was more about the fact that the COVID supplement uh, was going to run out uh, and uh, there was going to be nothing. So it almost felt like the government was doing this as a way to say, well, at least it's not, uh, we're stopping the supplement and there's nothing else to take its place, even though, like you said, it's not the same amount. Yeah, I agree with you, Jill. Um, Sometimes it feels a bit tokenistic, this $175. Like it's a bit of a political move so that people aren't upset that the $300 is just abruptly ended. Um, But I think overall it is good news, but there's still much more to be done to to improve the lives of low-income people with disabilities. Uh, so with the rates then, the, the new rates then, as, as I'm reading it, is that for a single person with a, on disability assistance, it's $1,358. Uh, a single person with a child, $1,694. Um, what does that do as far as, can, can people, does it change anything as far as if somebody works part-time uh, and able to make wages in addition to this, uh, does that money then get clawed back? Or, or how does it actually help someone? Yeah, that's a really good question, Jill. Uh, so in the beginning of this year, the ministry actually increased uh, the exemption limits for people who can also earn money through like an employable income. Uh, so last year, for a single individual, they could uh, earn up to $12,000 a year without their income being clawed back, um, their PWD income being clawed back. Um, and that was then increased in January of this year to $15,000. So that's on top of the now $1,358 that a single person on disability assistance would get. So um, there, there is that opportunity for people with disabilities to make um, employable income and not have that clawed back to $15,000 for single individuals. Uh, it's um, $18,000 for and um, like a two-person household, uh, and then it's $30,000 if both of a couple uh, are have disability assistance. Um, but we also recognize that not everyone on disability assistance can work. Uh, so th- there are those people who can only rely on the now $1,358 a month, uh, which is still below the poverty line, which is $1,667 a month for single individuals. Uh, yeah, and people have been pointing that out, that it is still below that line. Uh, I'm guessing you would have liked to have seen it at least reach that line. Yeah, and we've seen over the past year, at least from the federal government, through the Canada Recovery Benefit, where uh, people who weren't able to work as much because of COVID uh, could get up to $2,000 a month uh, through that relief benefit. And, uh, you know, the federal government had decided that rate of $2,000 uh, which is above the poverty line, but it's still like it barely makes do for some people, especially in urban centers. So I think there's already been some cases of this over the past year about how uh, how much people can really uh, what they how much they really need in order to get by. Um, and that argument, I think, has been made. 
All right, uh, Helen, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much, though, for coming on and talking more about this. Thanks, Jill. Well, there is a growing call for paramedics to get some backup, to perhaps have other municipal emergency responders take on some of that role or be able to take on some of that role. That follows many warnings that have been put out by paramedics. So we've seen it on social media. We've done interviews on this program talking about a shortage of paramedics and some very wait lengthy, so very lengthy wait times, especially when it comes to people who are calling for an ambulance on the weekends and a group of 11 Metro Vancouver mayors are calling for these changes. One of those mayors is joining me on the line now. George Harvey is the mayor of Delta. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, good afternoon and thanks for the opportunity. Uh, What exactly are you and the other mayors asking for here? Well, first of all, all of us as mayors would like to say that we really support our paramedics. They're amazing people. The problem is not the paramedics. The problem is the lack of staffing inadequate, you know, adequate uh, just ambulances and availability and equipment for for the paramedics. Uh, But what's happening has been happening for many years, and this is an old file. In fact, we wrote a previous letter uh, almost a year ago to the Deputy Minister of Health saying that we need to better coordinate our services together. Uh, In February 2019, the Auditor General's report for the province stated that there needs to be better coordination between local governments and emergency health services. We have significant problems with individuals that are only for the paramedics. And again, no fault of the paramedics is taking tremendous time for them to arrive. We recently had a case where it was 45 minutes for the paramedics to arrive. And during that time, fortunately, our uh, firefighters in Delta were called. So they arrived at the scene in six minutes and and sat and cared for that patient until such time as the ambulance arrived. But our problem is, all across the Lower Mainland, is we do not always get those calls. And what we're asking for as a collective group of mayors is that we sit down with the province and the health services and then come to an agreement as to which calls the firefighters in our jurisdiction should be attending. And uh, there's always a, a problem with regards to, you know, territories with regards to the ambulance or firefighters. This is about the people that are on the ground. I also had a personal situation where my brother-in-law, who's a paraplegic, had a fall, broke his leg severely. He was immobilized uh, and not being able to move for almost an hour. But fortunately, the firefighters were called and they sat there and provided assistance to him, relaying vitals back to the emergency health services and also controlling the situation. And when the, fire, the, fire, when the paramedics did arrive, they were able to go right to work. The situation was calmed. They were ready. They provided the vital information. So what we need is an agreement that we can do this until such time as the complement of paramedics in our community uh, reached where the firefighters don't have to be called. That, that's what we really ultimately want, is to, to ensure that our ambulances are available in a timely manner. But when you look at Delta, and you know Delta very well, Jill, we're at the end of the road. And when an ambulance goes and has to take a patient to a regional hospital, Surrey or Royal Columbia or in Vancouver, that ambulance is off the grid, leaving us at times with no ambulances available. Uh, and, and I think this is where there's some confusion because you're right, this is an, an issue that's been happening before. We've certainly talked about it before. I remember being at the Delta uh, Fire Hall a few years ago uh, reporting on the fact that firefighters were getting expanded uh, uh, expanded duties, uh, that they were going to be called and were going to be uh, offering up some of that first aid. And, and even at that time, there was the territorial issues of whose job it was. Uh, so I think a lot of people were under the impression that firefighters do get called to a lot 
lot of these calls. No, and that's it. And we get criticized for not attending, but we don't get the calls. And that's what we need to, again, get in a good agreement with Provincial Emergency Health Services as to when our firefighters will be dispatched. Now, some cities uh, do not see a need for this, and that's their own decision, of course. Uh, but the group of mayors that we've that are on that letter and others uh, fully support us sitting down and ensuring that nobody needs to be sitting alone, re- reg- you know, requiring emergency health services to be our ambulance, and you know, and for 45, 40 minutes or even less. It's extremely important that we can utilize our resources to ensure that those patients are looked after until the ambulance arrives. We are not talking about <clears throat> transporting uh, patients at all. It's just being with them calming the situations, providing what assistance they can do, uh, relaying the vital information until the ambulance actually arrives. Uh, what about calls when somebody doesn't actually need to be transported, though, if it's, uh, say, a fall or, or something where a firefighter with the first aid training that a firefighter has could, could attend to the call, and in, in, in that case, they wouldn't need an ambulance at all? Uh, that's a, uh, they, what would happen is the uh, firefighters would contact emergency health services, give them the information. We would always rely on their judgment as to whether that person should be released and not have an ambulance come. Uh, so what is the stumbling block here? Because it seems like a bit of a no-brainer that somebody that has first aid training could get to the scene within, say, 10 minutes. And like you said, be there with the patient, assess the situation. And even if it's a half hour or 40 minutes for an ambulance, at least they're there. Uh, why isn't this just happening? It's a good question, and one that's already puzzled me over the years when I was city manager and, and now as mayor and with the other mayors on this file for many years. Um, there's no need for this now. And one thing that we learned during COVID is working together makes you stronger. And we look at areas where the mayors and our, and our firefighters and our staff are working with other provincial agencies to, on the COVID situation. It's, it's been a real success and one that I hope stays. But in this case, we still can't break that barrier of trying to sit down with the province in coming up to an agreement. Uh, because I think people would agree, uh, if you're having a heart attack, if somebody's in cardiac arrest, you want a paramedic coming and you want that ambulance that's going to get you to the hospital as soon as possible, but an ambulance isn't needed in every medical situation. No, but even in the case of a heart attack, our firefighters uh, in those cases are usually dispatched, uh, but they can provide much needed attention uh, to, that, to that patient that needing some help. Uh, you know, we're well equipped uh, with our with our defibrillators, defibrillators in those types of situations. Um, but again, it's, I think we really need to put the politics aside and really get into the fact that we should be concentrating on patient care for that in- individual that is sitting on the ground or collapsed or whatever case. But uh, we, we have the resources. Uh, we don't. It's not like a takeover or anything. It's really ensuring that the resources, and there's only one taxpayer uh, that are there, they should be made available until such time as the paramedics can get on the scene. Isn't that part of the politics of it, though, the concern that if firefighters or other first responders start taking up this role, uh, there might not be a need, we might not see the full complement of paramedics restored? Uh, But at the same time, you're still getting those 45 to 60-minute wait times, and that's not acceptable on any standard I've ever seen uh, for patient care. Uh, you've written this letter along with the uh, 10 other mayors. Uh, I know it's still early. Uh, have you had a response or are you anticipating a response? Well, we're going to ensure that we get a response uh, because, we, again, as we wrote a similar letter last year, uh, almost a year to date, and uh, we have not had any responses back. 
Um, and of course, I understand the COVID happened uh, that uh, probably probably set, you know, set off a different timeline for it. But now that, uh, you know, we need to move forward and we're always going back to, it's not just the, the local cities and the firefighters are asking for this. It was recognized, as I mentioned, by the Auditor General's report in 2019. And he's, you know, that report was right on. We need to capitalize on the trained and licensed emergency response personnel we have with the firefighters uh, just to provide a better coordinated uh, approach. Because, again, it's all about patient care and addressing that person who's sitting there. And I'm sure many of your listeners have had situations where they've been waiting for an ambulance. And then it seems like an eternity. And this, this is a great help at the, at the site where the problem is for firefighters to take control until the ambulance gets there. Would the change happen then in dispatch in that what happens right now if a dispatcher knows, say someone has fallen and they've called for an ambulance, does the dispatcher not look at the board and say, well, the closest ambulance is an hour away? I'm going to send fire crews your way? Uh, sometimes it has and sometimes it doesn't. And that's the problem we have. It's not a strict protocol. Uh, the fire departments are asking for, uh, for so they, they can do their proper training. And is, what they're asking for is, is a strict protocol as to what types of calls each individual fire department in Metro Vancouver would like to be dispatched to. All right. We will uh, wait and see what happens with this. I know a lot of people very interested uh, on uh, the response to the letter and if there are any changes. Uh, Mayor Harvey, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. Thanks again for the opportunity. Take care. Well, a new report, it was put out yesterday, actually, takes a look at the plan by Ottawa, the $170 per tonne carbon tax, and saying that by the year 2030, that could result in a loss of more than 200,000 jobs. There are always various different opinions about this. So we are going to talk now to Akio Yamazaki, an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Calgary Department of Economics. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Yeah, thank you very much for having me. We wanted to talk about some of these numbers. This is a report that was put out by the Fraser Institute, and it takes a look at the carbon tax, specifically in B.C. It looks across the country, but in B.C., and the impact that the carbon tax going up to $170 per tonne would have on jobs, saying that B.C. would actually have about 23,000 fewer jobs because of that. I know you've studied this and taking a look at the link between jobs and a carbon tax. What are your thoughts? on that right so i mean when we impose the carbon taxes i mean for sure that's gonna raise the cost of a lot of people uh even when british columbia you know imposed this carbon tax back in 2008 we had this opposition saying that that's gonna kill you know jobs and it's not gonna go for the economy but uh but you know after after several years and, and i've done some research on this and we i actually find that uh, the carbon tax we're able to uh, generate some um, some uh, additional jobs. Uh, I mean, there's some losers and winners, losers and winners, but but it, at the aggregate levels, uh, we were uh, I, I I was able to find that that the carbon tax were able to generate uh, uh, additional jobs. Uh, but it, the the key thing here is that uh, that it really depends on how the government uh, handles the, the the tax revenue. Raised by the carbon tax. So, uh, you know, the case for the DC carbon tax when, when they first implemented this, uh, this carbon tax, they recycled the tax revenue through reduction of personal income tax and, and corporate income taxes. 
that's a that's a, a great way to re, 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 recycle the tax revenue from carbon tax because that would create incentive for companies in in household to react to the, the policy in a way that that could not only mitigate the cost of carbon tax but also to stimulate the economy. Uh, so I, I think the key thing here is that uh, you know we should focus a lot a lot on how the government would eventually recycle the tax revenue from carbon tax. Right. And and you've talked about that and the fact that it is when it was brought out, it was revenue neutral and how important that is to the policy. Uh, But but now with it not and with the fact that that really uh, they're not holding that that standard, making it revenue neutral. How does that change things, do you think? Uh, So I think that uh, I think that if it's even if it's not revenue neutral, I think that, you know, the 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 main thing about the carbon tax is that it still raises the revenue. Right. So. That's a very important part of the carbon tax, as opposed to other types of, you know, environment regulation that just puts a puts a mandate or standards to reduce the carbon emissions. So, still, the government has a has a, a, a flexibility in how to use those revenues. And, and it, when you look at Alberta, they've used that to sort of they've used that to to foster innovations, investments in green technologies. But but you know, uh, I would still argue that, that you know. The government of BC has a has a possibility to recycle the tax revenue from carbon tax, and and, and they could all still use that revenues to you know reduce the uh, uh, reduce the rate of other uh, existing tax system. So I think that's still an important part of the you know, of the of the carbon tax. Uh, is the number though? What about the number? Because even when on on a federal level, uh, we didn't know it was going to go up to one hundred and seventy dollars per ton, and it, that it was going to be so large. So, with some of the projections, and again in this report, this study looks at uh, the Canadian economy uh, with an indication that we might see uh, a two point one percent decline in GDP. That's what could then lead to the loss of more than two hundred thousand jobs countrywide. So, is there a concern? That as the tax goes up, GDP declines. That we do see a loss in those jobs. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the one concern. I mean, big concern for sure. But you know, I think usually what what we talk about the cost of the environmental taxation, specifically carbon tax, we tend to think about the short term cost, right? So those you know decline in GDP and job losses. That's simply that's usually uh, you know what we call the short term cost, right? But then. Well, what I'd like to emphasize is that the carbon tax actually has a long-term benefit, not just not just a decline in emission, but it could it could be uh, it could foster innovations and more investment, and, and that will have a you know long you know long-term effect and long long-term benefit. So I would I would argue that you know when we you know because usually when we talk about you know those environmental policies. Uh, whether, whether, whether or not that's a good idea to implement, you know, people focus a lot about you know the cost of the those you know, cost of these policies, and and but what's what what we usually forget is there's also benefit. So so I think that uh, those numbers are, are you know it may make it might make sense, but but we should also consider about the benefit coming from this capital. 
Well, it's not a bumblebee, but it is an invasive pest and it is threatening pollinators, ignoring international borders. It is now the focus of an international effort to eradicate it in the Pacific Northwest. Talking about the Asian giant hornet, a lot of people refer to it as the murder hornet. And what is being done to eradicate it? We're going to take a look at that now. And joining me is Gail Wallen, Executive Director of the Invasive Species Council of BC. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Uh, This is something I know when people see the picture of these hornets, uh, they can be quite frightening. Nobody wants to really come face to face with them if you're uh, squeamish about these types of uh, things. What is being done now to try and eradicate them? Well, first of all, we don't have a known population in British Columbia right now of Asian giant hornets. So the goal is to actually have all the public, uh, anybody that's uh, out in the, on the lands, to take a look at and be alert so that they can report a possible Asian giant hornet. We we can't uh, talk about eradicating until we know whether we've actually got nests. So last year we only had six confirmed reports, none of a nest. Um, the, we hopefully won't find a nest, but the goal is to find that nest and then to eradicate so what is the public being asked to do? And is it make sure in a report if you see this or, or you see the nest or, or the hornet itself? Right. So we've got a website, bcinvasives.ca, which has a really easy way to take a picture and report what you see in your backyard or out for a walk. Um, there's a lot of things that get reported that aren't hornets, but that's okay. We can sort that out. If, you, if it looks big and looks out of place, send it in. And then we can uh, send in a photo, take a picture with your phone, um, be alert. What we're looking for is early detection of what we think might be an Asian giant hornet. And then the specialists can get involved in make, going out and confirming it and taking action on it. Uh, so in Washington State, I know people will likely remember seeing that video of when they use that kind of vacuum device to take out the nest uh, that they found in that state. And it seemed like that was a pretty big victory. That was a big deal when it comes to fighting uh, these hornets. But is it still, uh, we think there are more nests or what is the issue right now? So British Columbia actually had the first net, nest find, which is in 2019, and it was eradicated in Nanaimo. Um, at this point in 2020, there was no new finds or spottings of Asian giant hornet in Nanaimo. So in the States, um, they have found more. They've had over 30 detections this last year, and they did eradicate that one large nest, which had you know over a couple hundred um, queens in it that if they had been released would have set up possibly 200 new nests. So uh, BC is working with Washington, our neighbours, along with federal government, to help make sure that we're all working together to share knowledge and information. There's actually international press conference on it right now. And is it is it difficult doing this with COVID protocols or is that having any impact? Um, obviously, if you're working, so let me answer, there's no real impact because you can be outside there looking and reporting on your own in your own bubble. So that's totally fine. Is it having impact when we'd have to go out and inspect the site or have somebody verify it? Yes, that'll mean you have to take COVID protocols. But right now, the big thing, particularly as we get into the spring, because right now they'll be coming out of their nests in the spring, which we're still in advance of. So really no big issue now. But if you do see them, report them. And then we'd have to have the right protocols to go in to respond to them. I mentioned pollinators off the top and uh, the threat to pollinators. Is that the main threat of these, these giant hornets? Or, or why is it so important that we eradicate them? 
So you're right. They're what they call an apex predator, which means there's nothing that really predates on them. They predate on on insects, including our pollinators, which are really important for our food production, for our ecosystems, et cetera. So that absolutely is a huge issue. But uh, human health is also a, a major issue because we don't re- you know, the one found in Nanaimo was found in a park area, so it could have had implications to people using that, pets using that area. But not only uh, public health and concerns for our pollinators, but also from an ecological side. These are big hornets, and they will consume a lot of insects. They can destroy um, a wasp nest or a bee nest uh, very quickly. They're going to have a major impact on our native ecosystems, and if they consume the food or habitats that native species would really have, they would actually displace them. And that, anytime you up, up, uh, disrupt our ecosystem, is not good for our environment. Uh, We talked about how BC is now working with Washington State or continuing to work with the state on this program. Uh, Looking at uh, the the government release that was put out, it says that the Washington State Department of Agriculture is going to continue uh, using orange juice and rice cooking wine in traps. And it it goes on to say citizen scientists will have the option of using either orange juice or a brown sugar-based bait. Mm -hmm. Is that being done here as well? So yes, species, um, exactly a good conversation. Yes, we encourage people to trap. We encourage, there's a, we'll have information on our web, website, bcinvasive.ca. The brown sugar water combination is being tried out in the States. We're going to look at that here. Uh, we've got traps here that are deployed. And then when, if you get something in your trap, then we would bring in somebody from government to take a look at it to make sure that they're handling it appropriately in case it is uh, Asian giant hornet. And when you say trap, is that a specific trap or are we, again, uh, I love the term citizen scientists. Are we telling people to go out and trap them uh, just with the the orange juice or the brown sugar based bait in their own contraption? There's guidance on how to build it. There's a, if you go to our website, you'll find how to build it out of a used pot bottle so that you can build it in a way that would be successful. And that's based on sort of, you got to have a trap that will attract the Asian giant hornet, but not attract native species because you don't want to decimate our native species. So it has to be careful and positioned well. So absolutely, when we talk about citizen science, it's because we as citizens are out there on the ground all the time, whether it's playing in the parks or going for walks, we have the ability to have our eyes out there being alert and reporting. So absolutely, we're calling on every British Columbian Uh, get involved. We have a volunteer program. Find out how to get involved um, and be on the alert, whether it's Asian giant hornet or Japanese beetle or so many other species that if we can take action on them early on, we'll have a much better job of protecting British Columbia's nature. All right. I think you kind of answered my question because when I first saw that, my concern was, well, what if I put something out like that and suddenly there are honeybees or there are other uh, insects or things that we don't want to kill uh, trapped in there? But that's that's good to know there's uh, instructions on the website. What about people who are fearful of these creatures and might be fearful to put the trap out because they don't want this hornet anywhere near them? So, first of all, we have not trapped any hornets in British Columbia yet. So, um, all the reports we've had are from people been, that have been reporting them. So, um, if you get them in your trap, if you have them on your property and one of them is in your trap, that's better to know about it so you actually be taken to remove it rather than stumbling on it um, when you didn't know it was there and, and not being able to be proactive. So, the traps are actually a tool to become informed early so that responsible action be taken rather than you finding it accidentally in your backyard or on your trail or whatever. How likely is it, do you think, that there are more nests or that we will find nests in BC? Um, it's, the challenge is 
um, we don't know exactly how they're coming in or how they came in. So in a perfect world, we're going to hope we never see another nest in British Columbia. Um, whether if there's a chance that we would, yes, there's a chance we would because they've had them in the States uh, with more numbers than we had in British Columbia. So there's a risk here. But the best thing is prevention. And so that's why we're calling on British Columbians to be alert, find out about it and report because that's our best way of staying safe. Have you uh, have we had a program like this before with other invasive species or, or is this one different by its scope and what we're dealing with? So we've been calling on British Columbians to report invasive species, whether there's plants or, or insects or animals from from for a long time. But we're really upping our game because more and more research is showing how examples like the Asian giant hornet, the first time they're found is by somebody reporting them. Right now, there's moss balls that we're concerned about in aquariums. The only, and these, these moss balls that are in BC's aquariums in many people's private homes actually have zebra mussels on them by coincidence, by accident, etc. But it's because an informed citizen alerted uh, government about that, that we're actually able to take proactive action to make sure those aren't going to be spread into our lakes and water. So a, a real key to success is getting more and more British Columbians alert and reporting on things that look out of place so that those people that are experts can identify it, confirm it, and then take action. All right. And you mentioned that uh, we did find that nest in Nanaimo back in 2019. Uh, for people listening, what areas or, or are there areas that we want to focus on as far as citizen scientists or people? Where would we be more likely, do you think, if we are going to find these hornets, where would that be? For Asian giant hornet, the, the pr- prime area of concern is the Fraser Valley, the western side of the Fraser Valley. So that's by far the hot topic area because that's north of the finds that that they've had in Washington. And also we've had some sightings there last year of individuals, no nests, but we found individuals. So where'd they come from? Um, So Fraser Valley for sure, definitely going to monitor in the Nanaimo area. Hopefully we're going to find zero sightings this year, and that'll be two years with no zero sightings. Um, So that'll be a positive if we can find zero sightings over there. Uh, Those are the two prime areas, but um, it doesn't mean that you won't find them in other parts of the lower mainland, lower Vancouver Island. So that whole area is high alert, but particularly high alert in the Fraser Valley and the Nanaimo area. All right. Gail Wallen, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for bringing us all of this information. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for your time.